Hello, Weird Studies listeners. Just a quick word of warning for today's episode. This one contains graphic descriptions of an extremely violent scene from a film by John Carpenter. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. JF and I started doing these introductions because in the early days, our conversations often started in media res, and we would have to go back and provide the missing setup to whatever it was we were talking about. But even as we've reformed some of our earlier bad habits, we still find the intros useful to give listeners an overview of the day's topic, and I particularly like using them as an opportunity to bring up my favorite bits that didn't make it into the conversation. Case in point, the glider scene from the 1981 film Escape from New York. This week, J.F. and I are talking about the films of John Carpenter, including Escape from New York. And for much of this discussion, we pay special attention to Carpenter's apocalyptic streak, particularly in In the Mouth of Madness and the little-known Cigarette Burns, both of which imagine art as a weapon of mass destruction. Towards the end, we talk a little about Escape from New York and the peculiar apocalypse it pictures— a modern urban landscape turned into a darkened wilderness sparsely inhabited by the mad and the damned to whom death or ecstasy or both can befall at any time for any reason or no reason at all. In Escape from New York, the city has become a vast prison, and after Air Force One has been hijacked by someone who sounds like Patty Hearst in her Symbionese Liberation Army phase and the plane goes down in Lower Manhattan, the film's anti-hero, Snake Plissken, is charged with rescuing the President of the United States. Snake silently infiltrates the city by piloting a glider to the top of the World Trade Center. And this scene sums up much of what I love about Carpenter's films. First of all, there is the music, a piano piece by the French Impressionist composer Claude Debussy called The Sunken Cathedral, played on synthesizer by Carpenter himself. For all Carpenter comes off as a blunt-spoken, mullet-haired, radically unpretentious craftsman, he is sneakily erudite. He was the son of a music professor at Bowling Green State University, after all, and his familiarity with classical music allows him to find the perfect accompaniment for this eerie and liminal scene. Everyone thinks this piece is by Carpenter himself, or at least Spotify does. And little wonder, as Carpenter composed the soundtrack for most of his films, and most of those share the vintage synth sound we hear in the glider scene. 
Carpenter's own compositions carry echoes of Debussy, Wagner, Bach, and other classical composers. But lest we get carried away in reframing Carpenter as an art cinema guy, this music sounds the way it does for very practical reasons. Carpenter saved a lot of money by composing and playing all the music himself, and he chose synthesizers because A, he can play the piano, and B, with synthesizers you can get a full quasi-orchestral sound without having to hire a bunch of extra musicians. The scene plays out in a darkness broken by the glow of the glider's instrument panel. In a way I can't quite put in words, the darkness, the synthesizer Debussy, and the glider's silent flight over a dead city work together to create the mood of mingled wonder and dread that the film unspools over the next hour and a half. The scene distills everything essential about the film, even as nothing much is happening. It's a great example of Carpenter's mastery of mood. And the whole thing probably cost about ten bucks. Carpenter didn't have the money for a real computer display on the glider's instrument panel, such things being rare at the time, so he covered models of the city with a grid of reflective tape and shot them under a black light. You can say that Carpenter is an artist drawing from deep wells of art history, and you'd be right. But it's also true to say that the aesthetic is fast, cheap, and fun. Perhaps the same could be said of the Weird Studies Patreon, for which J.F. and I record an episode on our off-weeks and also write essays, such as my latest, titled I Miss the Countercultural Idea Even If It Was Kind of Stupid. Fast, cheap, fun, and a little dumb. It's an educated stupidity. As for fun, well, I suppose it depends on what your definition of fun is. But it's definitely cheap. Only six bucks to get everything, and three bucks for the writing. And if you're after really cheap fun, like free, you can also head over to the Weird Studies subreddit and fan discord. Okay, on with the show. So in answer to your question, did I watch the thing? I watched the first, I don't know, 20 minutes of it or something. And then, and this is embarrassing to admit, but I was like, I'm just too scared to keep watching this. I turned it off. (laughs) Well, in my defense, um, in my defense, it was coming after a week of watching a bunch of John Carpenter horror films. The night before I watched, I think probably the hardest of them, which is that Cigarette Burns TV episode, but really kind of a short movie. TV movie, yeah. Yeah, sort of like a novella. Yeah. Um, And that freaked me out. And then I started watching the thing and I'm like, no, 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 I can't handle any more of this. (laughs) Not actually gore and violence, although the thing has a reputation for being a gory film, but Holy shit, the mastery of suspense. Anus-clenching suspense. Yes. I couldn't fucking handle it. Yeah. Like Because, you know, I was talking to my son about this, and he was like, well, 90% of that movie is dudes sitting around, like not actually doing anything, or no aliens, nobody's exploding, or whatever. It's just atmosphere and tension, which is what I love 
about mm-hmm. John Carpenter's films, what makes him my favorite horror director. But at the same time, uh, it's – yeah, I just – I couldn't handle it anymore. The thing that makes Carpenter so amazing to me is the metaphysics of his films because they always have this crazy metaphysical grounding. Like the stakes could not be higher. Like in The Mouth of Madness, it's the dissolution not only of the world but of the very substance of reality itself. Like that's what's coming apart in his movies. Right. And it's clear when you're listening to the dialogue and you're paying attention to the films that – whether or not this particular monster is real out there in the world, the implications are real. Like it's clear mm. that, that we're being told something about reality that's really hard to handle. And um, that to me is what makes this film so haunting and what keeps them going long after you've finished watching them. You're continually kind of revisiting the ideas, like especially those three so-called apocalyptic films that he like it's a trilogy some people have grouped them maybe he did i'm not sure that the thing prince of darkness in the mouth of madness and then i would add to that cigarette burns Mm -hmm. these are films about the dissolution of the border between fantasy and reality and the dissolution of the very substance of reality itself into kind of this crazy mad abyss and so not every horror director does that you know like halloween his first film which is by the way, I think he invented the slasher flick with that that movie. Yeah, pretty much. Doesn't have that. It's it's a more standard horror film of the Stephen King variety where you have a stable reality suddenly breached, invaded by an alien force and then the goal is to expunge, you know, expel that alien force. But in his later films, maybe even his earlier ones, I'm just singling out Halloween because it's different, but What's going on is that there's this infection of reality and there's no, there's no fixing it once it started. And, you know, at the end of Prince of Darkness, they kind of fix it, but then you find out that now actually it's still happening and there's no fixing it. So that's what makes this mm. film so existentially disturbing and troubling, but also what makes him truly, I think, one of the only cosmic horror filmmakers in the horror That's genre. That's a really good point. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, even the films of his that we don't think of as apocalyptic films like They Live or Escape from New York, those are just apocalypses that are put on hold. Yeah. Or that have been delayed a little bit. Right. Or at the end of Escape from L.A., which I did watch, definitely the weakest of his films that I watched for this Mm. Um, episode, mm-hmm. but still with a lot to talk about. In Escape from L.A., there actually is an apocalypse at the end where he uh, uses a super weapon that will shut down every electronic device on Earth. Like he presses the button. He has an opportunity to destroy civilization, he being Snake Plissken, which right. he does, mostly just out of spite. Just to fuck with the people who have been fucking with him throughout the movie. Yeah. And so Apocalypse is always kind of there. Yeah, that's true. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He loves thinking on the biggest possible scale. Now, I haven't watched all of his movies. He made a lot of movies. And his earliest movies I haven't seen. The earliest one of his films that I've seen is, uh, I don't know, probably Escape from New York. You haven't seen The Fog? Haven't seen The Fog, haven't seen Halloween because slasher films ain't my thing, even though everyone says this one is like, you know, an imperishable classic. And his first two official films, Dark Star and Assault on Precinct 13, I haven't seen that either. So this is not an exhaustive 
exploration of Carpenter, but yeah, but the, our usual rhizomatic nomadic treatments. Yeah. So what we want to do certainly is- the ones, Certainly the ones I saw always had a strong flavor of apocalypse, even big trouble in Little China. Anyway, sorry, yeah, I interrupted you. You were about to it does. say something. Um, big Trouble in Little China is an amazing movie. And, Fucking uh, awesome. Yeah, that was the first one. In fact, we started off, you know, because you were like, I'm just finishing up the semester. I want to do something, you know, wacky and fun and, and- Like just fun and dumb. Yeah. So then I-, I wrote up a list of different things and then we agreed to do Big Trouble in Little China and then we and then we ended up just watching a whole bunch of carpenter movies. So we're we're doing a, a show on on car, carpentry. <laughs> um <laughs> Which is funny. Remember the beginning of In the Mouth of Madness when Sam Neill's character is in the uh, sanatorium at the beginning? They put him in a padded cell. And yes, then, that's right. And then he starts to he starts shouting, I'm not I'm not insane. I'm a sane man. And then all the other inmates start to say the same thing. They're saying thing. the same thing. It's like, oh, God. And so the head psychiatrist puts on some music. Some like calming music. Oh, it's, it's the Carpenters. Yeah, it's We've the We've only car- just begun. Yeah, exactly. But it's so funny because- And he slumps against the wall of his padded cell. He's like, not the Carpenters too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it just occurred to me now that John Carpenter is a carpenter himself. Oh, that's yeah, just funny. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> um, so you'll have I little would say jokes that Sam, like that. Sam Neill's character has a bad case of the carpenters. Yeah, in this exactly. Movie. <laughs> He's besieged by carpenters. It's like that, like from, um, what is it called? Spaceballs. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surrounded by assholes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so where do we begin? So I'll tell you the ones that I watched. Um, I watched In the Mouth of Madness again. I watched The Thing last night again. I had seen, I don't think I... I don't think I watched anything. Oh, yeah. I watched Cigarette Burns, which you discovered. I didn't even know about this, but there was a, I think it was like a pay TV series yeah, of some Showtime sort. Showtime series. Right. Called Masters of Horror. Early 2000s. And uh, mm-hmm. he did episode eight, I think. And it's called mm-hmm. Cigarette Burns. And it's fantastic. As I wrote to you, I think it's kind of the seed crystal or like mm-hmm. it's the purest distillation of the carpenter affect like Mm. and it's really dark it's really dark and gory and it's about movies and it's about transgression it's got this Georges Bataille feel to it I don't know I loved that that short so maybe we'll talk about I watched watch that Escape from New York I watched for the first time um I'm so excited to talk about that with you yeah I know how can we even begin to talk about all these great movies like any one of these could take up one or two shows. And you've and you've also seen like Prince of Darkness. That's an old favorite of yours. I love right? that movie. Yeah. Did you watch yeah. that one? No, no. Oh. So let me tell you my inventory for at least for right. this, for this episode. Big Trouble in Little China, of course. Escape from New York. About half of They Live. I just started watching They Live this morning with my coffee, but I've watched that countless times a favorite movie of mine. So, yeah. yeah. So Escape from New York, Escape from L.A. I also, of course, watched Cigarette Burns because I, um, you know, that's not listed in this official filmography on like Wikipedia. But if you dig a little deeper, you realize like Carpenter made a couple of TV movies that are actually kind of important. Like he made a biopic of Elvis that aired on TV. And that was the first time he worked with Kurt Russell, his huh. um, his leading man, um, uh, the great carpenter leading man but he also when he was more or less retired came back to direct this one hour sort of tv novella 
called Cigarette Burns. So, you know, there's a couple of important pieces of his filmography that actually escape regular notice, and Cigarette Burns is definitely one of them. Why don't we Why don't we start with that one? Yeah, I um, think oh, that's I a also, good idea. Oh, oh, and by the way, I also watched In the Mouth of Bandits, which right. I also, I mean, those two films will just want to be talked about together because they're both about the idea of art as contagion, art as something that is capable of unleashing forces, actual forces that can destroy lives. Or as it's spelt out for us in Cigarette Burns, the artist is a terrorist. And we have to yes. remember that the Cigarette Burns TV movie was made in that age of terror, you yeah. know, that, that decade after 9-11. So to say that the, he's a terrorist is something quite um, strong. And, he's invoking and, and, Osama bin Laden. Like the idea that a film could be something like piloting an airplane into the Twin Towers. An right. act of astonishing and incomprehensible violence. Right, exactly. Uh, a kind of absolute transgression. So yep. um, just to parallel the two, those two uh, works. So uh, Cigarette Burns is about a film that drives people to a murderous rage. And uh, that's just the symptom that's doing something much more sinister and, and darker under the surface. It's, it's basically a film that's was produced by Satan, is essentially what we're told that went for. <laughs> and then the other one, In the Mouth of Madness, is about a writer whose novels drive people to into a murderous rage. And mm -hmm. the, this murderous rage is contagious, right? Yeah. So in both of these works, you have an artist whose work is apocalyptic in the most literal sense. But yeah, starting with Cigarette Burn. So that one's about a film. It's about, uh, it's what is it? It's about a... A recovering heroin addict who runs a movie theater that he purchased with money loaned to him by his ex-girlfriend's father, who seems to be a wealthy kind of Los Angelino. The father loaned him the money because uh, he was hoping that giving this guy something to do would help him get his act together and help also his daughter overcome her own addiction. But in the end, the daughter died of an overdose. The father is in... No, suicide. She cut her wrists. Right, right. Yeah, she commits suicide. The father is now um, then blames the, the owner of the theater and wants his money back, $200,000. So the theater programmer is taking jobs. He's trying to find a way to pay off this debt so he can keep his movie theater. And he gets an assignment from a sinister fellow named Mr. Bellinger, who's a collector of rare films and... Uh, Mr. Bellinger is looking for a specific movie that has an almost legendary reputation because supposedly all copies were destroyed after an incident that occurred at its premiere at a festival in Rotterdam, I think. Is it? Or is it? No, it's in France somewhere. So supposedly the film was screened one time and everybody basically murdered one another in the room. It was just this horrible bloodbath. And uh, this film has at, has... at one point, the fellow who was manning the projection booth during that talks about just the smell of blood, like hearing screams first and then beginning to smell blood coming up to the projectionist booth, which is a great creepy touch. <laughs> yes. And so this Mr. Bellinger guy who is at the end of his life decides that he cannot die without seeing this film. So he hires Kirby, the main character, to track down a print of the film. And he has evidence that uh, 
It's kind of a stretch, but he has evidence that oh, the film uh, still this exists. This is my favorite yeah. single bit of the film. No, no, the, the, the scene is great, but the fact that, anyways, uh, yes. So tell us. So what? He has evidence that the film still exists. Yeah, because at first he doesn't believe Mr. Bellinger. And Mr. Bellinger wants to emphasize how serious he is. And he's like, I want to show you something and brings him to some basement room. And he's a collector, as, as JF says, a collector of memorabilia. And he has a remarkable piece of memorabilia chained up in his basement. It is an emaciated, paper white, humanoid figure, indescribably strange. And still alive. And still alive, if barely. It seems to be half alive. And with a pair of bloody stumps where the shoulder blades would normally be. Clearly, this is yeah. an angel that has had its wings roughly hacked off. We see the wings elsewhere in this opening scene. Yeah. But we are left with this indelible image of this creature, this extraordinary creature chained up in a basement. And, and the reason why the creature is evidence that the prince still exists, the creature itself tells... Uh, the character says that I am bound to the negative. Like he's bound to the existence of the film. Yeah. The, yeah. The negative has to exist if I'm still here. That the film, which is called La Fin Absolue du Monde, The Absolute End of the World. I just love that title. So, mm. uh, and uh, the film in, in La Fin Absolue du Monde, there's a scene where they hack off this angel's wings and it's a real angel. So it's kind of a snuff film. Mm-hmm. A theocidal snuff film, right? <laughs> where, where the essence of divinity itself is murdered in front of the camera. And Kirby takes the job. And then what happens is that anyone who starts looking for this particular film begins to experience certain things. One of the symptoms, one of the first signs that the process is starting is that you start seeing cigarette burns in reality. So cigarette burns are an old film technique because, you know, traditionally a film came in several reels. And so a projectionist had to switch over the reels so that the film would play through to the end. And when the end of a reel was coming, you'd get a little dot in the top right corner of the frame. And that's called a cigarette burn because it looks like a cigarette burn in the, in the celluloid. And that's the uh, signal that the projectionist needs to switch the reels. And so cigarette burns start manifesting in reality and inside the cigarette burns, you start getting kind of glimpses of the future or the past. I don't know, this other reality. It reminds me of William Burroughs' famous line, if you cut into the present, the future leaks out. Hmm. Um, and so it's like the world is becoming filmic. The world itself is becoming indistinguishable from the substance of film itself. And uh, particularly as, yeah. a horror film. A ho it's pretty, yeah, not any film. Yeah, but because the, it's horrifying things that start coming through. Like, you yes. know, Kirby starts seeing visions of his wife in a bathtub filled with blood. And the horror starts springing out of these visions. This film is so powerful. Its malignant force is so powerful that you start losing your sanity, you start being pulled into this kind of satanic conspiracy, even just knowing that the film exists, even just getting closer to it will start sucking you in. So long before he actually finds the print, he's already damned. 
And when he does find the print, it's the widow of the filmmaker who still has a print, which she is very happy to get rid of. She says, I'll give this to you. And she's like, it's too late for you. It's already too late. You know, he's already damned. Yeah. There's some truth to that, you know. Um, As a film fan myself and uh, someone interested in transgressive film to a certain extent, I've experienced that. When I was living in Toronto, I had a... My barber was this uh, doom metal guitar player. And he was really interesting. He was really into horror and science fiction and, and metal and the whole culture of metal and esotericism and, you know, the occult and all that. So he was really a fun guy to talk to. And he recommended a film to me called Martyrs, Martyr, a French film by Pascal Logier. And he said that it was so, he told me that at the premiere, people fainted, had to be carried out. It was really hard to watch. But it's worth it. If you watch to the end, it's worth it. You know, I said that I'm interested in transgressive films. I'm not interested in transgression for the sake of transgression. Like, I'm not interested in seeing stuff like a Serbian film. Some of our listeners might have heard of this. I'm not interested in seeing stuff that's just shock. But the fact that he told me that if you watch it to the end, there's a kind of redemption at the end, or it becomes something else at the end, that for some reason, I, it became imperative that I see it, but I didn't want to see it. So I resisted. But all I could think about was watching this movie. You know, I was kind of like Kirby. And so I remember that I bought it, and but didn't watch it. And then um, was reading about it, interviews with the, the director. It was like one of those things, you know, and finally watched it and had to stop several times to like take a break because it is so, I found it so hard but he was right you know if you watch it to the end the only thing i say like if you're going to watch murders you got to watch right to the end or else you're going to do damage to yourself that you can't repair but the end does transcend it's it's really amazing actually so you know murders was sometimes compared to other so-called torture porn films like saw and and hostile and pascal logier correctly says in an interview that it's the anti-saw Point being, my only point here is that I understand how a film can affect you even before you watch it. And we talked about that with books, like books that affect you even before you read them. Like I was a huge fan of Moby Dick long before I read it. Just the images that I knew from it, what, I, what I'd heard about it, what I imagined it to be was compelling, was uh, haunted me. And a great test of a work of art is that it lives up to what you imagined and then some, right? And that's what happened with Moby Dick and Martyrs. But so that he's playing off of a real phenomenon when it comes to aesthetic experience and the pursuit thereof. Right? This is a little bit something like what we were talking about at the beginning of the Owl and Daylight episode when it's talking about the mysterious powers of music, the unreasonable efficacy of music. I think one example I gave was how you go and see a sad movie and you feel sad you you feel the emotion if it's a well-made film but it's a representation there's always a certain boundary between yourself and what you're watching you never really lose the sense that you're the one calling the shots that you're inviting this movie in but this movie is a guest and when you're done watching it the guest will leave and your life will go on as before but the idea of music that we were talking about perhaps exaggerating this aspect of music, but nevertheless, it's a real aspect of music is how it crawls inside you. It doesn't represent sadness. It enacts 
or realizes sadness in you, you become a sad person for no reason other than wiggling air molecules or hitting your ears. For no other reason. It's strange. It's an occult power, right? And something about music that's fascinated thinkers for millennia. And John Carpenter, who, by the way, is also a musician, one of the most important things to know about him is actually the soundtracks that he creates for almost all of these films, which are really amazingly apt and absolutely instrumental to creating that all-important mood. He's a musician. And, you know, I feel like in The Mouth of Madness and also in Cigarette Burns, he's imagining film as a force that defeats representation, something that goes beyond representation and becomes a force that can enact a reality. Which it, which it is, I would argue. Yeah. I, I think that music is just showing us more explicitly what's right. more implicit yeah. in other forms of art. Yeah. 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 It's it's partly because of the abstraction of music. It's weirder and so you notice it more. Exactly. But this is but this is something that I thought about both films and why I like talking about them or thinking about them together. Both films being cigarette burns in, in the mouth of madness, because both of them are really telling you something about art. It's funny because the way Carpenter talks about himself, he's very unpretentious. He can be very grouchy, like he doesn't suffer fools gladly, but he's actually quite humble because he doesn't talk much about being an artist. The way he talks about himself is more as a craftsman. He's very proud of his skill as a filmmaker, and he looks up to people like Harvey Corman. Not Harvey Corman. <laughs> <laughs> Ron Roger, Corman. Roger he he Corman, admires yeah. people like Roger Corman, just like bang out one movie after another, and he's that kind of guy, but you know in these films, he is, I think, sneakily meditating on art. And he, as a horror director, somebody who's always aware of the dark side of every equation, he wants us to understand that the kind of stuff you and I talk about every damn time we turn on the microphone, every time we talk about art, talking about art as if it were something that had that kind of power. Yeah, something something which the representational idea of art conceals only serves to conceal right or the is music a distraction in art. yeah yeah the right. music it's, in art exactly yeah, exactly and in these films he's actually telling us something absolutely real about art but because he's a hard director and he sees the dark side of things, it's also sort of like, hey, man, it cuts both ways. Yeah, art is a powerful force that can save us, but also by the same token, it could damn us. Yeah, and I think the hope is that it saves us in reality by damning us in art, right? Like the apocalyptic vision is salvific if it's on a movie screen or in a symphony it's horrible if it's out there in the world, but there's something redemptive, I think, in uh, his vision of horror in a meta sense, like that watching his film somehow helps, like They Live is a very political movie, you know? It's one of the first films that really kind of presents an idea that will find its consummation like The Matrix, right? Where the whole social order is organized in one way. It has an id, it has a real structure that, that its surface hides. So in They Live, you have um, a character. It's a Rod, Rowdy Roddy Piper. He, uh, he stars in They Live and he finds a box of sunglasses that allow him to see the truth behind the illusion of society, essentially. Right. 
the first thing is that he sees that all of the billboards he sees with these sunglasses on and the images on TV screens or whatever, all the all media, covers. all media is translated into its actual messaging, into its pornographic slash didactic messaging, right? So you'll have like, uh, I don't remember any examples because I didn't watch it. Do you remember any examples of billboards he sees? Like, the- Yeah. Yeah. So the very first thing he sees is uh, actually it's a rather clever little punning image. It's a like very 80s business equipment ad says something like we're creating a transparent computing environment and it's showing like you know for us a ridiculously retro 80s style computer but you know bragging about the sort of thing that people still brag about like we're yeah. going to make computing invisible it will be integrated so seamlessly into your life you don't even notice it's there that's the first ad that he looks at through the glasses that's amazing that that's the first yeah one. and and when he puts on the glasses it says obey yeah (laughs) i love it and uh like how subversive can you get like it's such a subversive movie made in you know in hollywood in 1988 right like this is one of those films that just gets better with every year yeah Yeah. a true act of prophecy i mean the downside is also it's a, a film that because it's sort of mythic and archetypal which is another thing about Carpenter is even when his films take place in like in Los Angeles in 1988 or whatever, they always have this kind of eternal quality. They're always yeah. working on the level of archetypes. Yeah, I'm sure Carpenter would laugh to hear me say that because he's a very down to earth and practical guy. Nevertheless, it's true. And on that level, uh, fucking neo-Nazis pick up on They Live. And they're like, yeah, the aliens are the Jews and blah, blah, blah. Right, uh, Which right. Carpenter has been at pains to say, nope, it was about Reagan and yuppies in the 1980s. But my point is that precisely because it has that kind of archetypal power, it, it can, can be adapted yeah. to all kinds of different ends. So I used to say like, man, it just says so much about the Bush administration, blah, blah, blah. And realizing like, man, no, no. If you start looking for specific bad guys to say that they live is about, I feel like you're going down the wrong path. That what's brilliant about it is in the guise of a pulpy B-movie-ish sci-fi thriller, you actually have a rather clever way of hitting us with the idea of the society of control. Yes, exactly. A a system rather than a bunch of individual evil people. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's, that's always the problem with myth. It's that myth is myth insofar as it remains in that in between. The minute you bring the myth down to earth and start applying it, Oh, hmm. the Jews are the, the reptilians or the royal family are the reptilians. You kill the myth. You turn it into ideology. This is Northrop Fry. I think he distilled this idea very simply and powerfully. And I remember that I cite him in my book and I'm trying to find the particular line. Yeah, right. The critic Northrop Fry defined ideology as applied mythology. Yeah. Every ideology he observed is rooted in a myth that is a particular symbolic imagining of the whole of life. But the point is that you have a myth that's a bardo kind of thing, an in-between thing that oscillates mm. and, and it applies to everything and nothing at the same time. Mm. It, it allows you to see things in the world that you wouldn't see without it. But if you turn the myth into an ideology, if you bring it down and apply it and, and turn the myth into an allegory, in other words, 
this means that for a, a one-to-one relation between the elements and the myth and elements of the real world, that's where you lose the myth altogether. So you're actually completely outside the realm of myth once you've done that. Mm. Token spoke to this too when he was reacting to people saying that the one ring was a symbol for the atomic bomb. He's like, there's a difference between allegory and applicability. My work may be applicable to different situations, but it's not ever allegorical. Mm. And so all this to say that they live, yeah, it could be co-opted by right-wing extremists or left-wing extremists for that matter. Or um, or even John Carpenter's own explanation of it. It's Reagan and yuppies. Yeah. Itself is actually a rather yeah, uh, exactly. limited. blunt and unhelpfully limited yeah, perspective, which is a great example of something we talk about repeatedly on the show. It's the artist isn't necessarily going to be saying anything that really tells you anything valuable. It's like, but watch the film. The film doesn't mention individuals. The film keeps it at the level of like, it's the winners of society who have mixed in amongst them these kind of skeleton face aliens. Right. And right. he never allows the film to achieve the level of flat literality and allegory that his own statements about the film did. You can imagine how in his initial ideation, it might have had that type of allegorical substance. Like it might have been more allegorical, more direct in its satire or whatever. But then as he polishes, as he works out the material, it becomes more and more mythic. And this is exactly what Deleuze and Guattari are getting at in the chapter on art that we discussed recently, uh, when they they distinguish perceptions and affections from affects and percepts. An affection is an emotion embedded in a particular historical context. I hate Mm. yuppies. I want to write a movie that sends up the yuppie world. Mm. And... But then if you're a good artist, which is always a question of craft for Deleuze and Guattari, not a question of kind of like inspiration. Inspiration. It's a question of of craft, of building something that stands up on its own. That's how they put it. In order for the film to stand up on its own, then you start to strip away the personal investments, the um, accidental aspects in order to bring out of an affection, a pure affect, which is a mythic symbol. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, the they live becomes applicable to so many different situations, not just yeah. social situations. You could apply they live to parts of yourself. Indeed. Right? Yeah. And so, so. Um, ex- and you, you should first and foremost, you know, tend your freaking garden before you join the neo-Nazis or the, you know, the symbionese liberation army exactly right <laughs> um uh it's i'm glad you mentioned that because it's so important but I, how do we get how do we get the do they live i don't remember now well we were <laughs> by a series of by the ways by the way this oh yeah and then by the way that like <laughs> ne- nested parentheses yeah. but we were talking i think where we left off the last the first branch in the path we were talking about the the angel in yes, the, the angel, right. Let's go back to the angel in the basement. So, so after he sees this very disturbing thing, one of the most disturbing things in a film full of disturbing things, and there's nothing particularly gruesome about it. It's just a, a thin guy in makeup, but it's so creepy. It has mood. It has ecstasy in Mackin's yeah. sense. It, it does. It does. It's like finding God, but by the time you found God, he's dead on the 
bathroom floor. Or almost, yeah. Bleeding, <laughs> almost at, bleeding out and gasping. And there's a scene where Mr. Bellinger picks an, an ice cube out of his drink and just flicks it at the angel. And the angel towers and, and gives a little muffled cry. A completely broken, wretched creature. And it's an angel. Oh, man. And this this uh, trope of the captive angel. The captive angel. We discussed this before in our- In the Castrato episode. Also in the Legati episode on Rinaldi's, Mrs. Rinaldi's angel. Oh, that's right. And also in that episode, I think you read the opening to that uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez story. About the captive angel. About the captive angel. There's something about capturing an angel, like you would capture a butterfly or a, a moth, you know? It's this old trope. It's weird. And the idea that you would catch an angel like you caught a wild animal and then mistreated it in a totally ignorant way, the way human beings almost always seem to mistreat animals. You know, well, just in, the in, fact of, it, of its captivity is enough to start killing it slowly. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. In Marquez's story, like the local headman wants to kill it. It's dangerous. And then somebody figures out that if you just charge a nickel to see the angel, well, then that's okay. That that makes sense. Yeah. Like it's, a, it's a fucking circus freak show paid attraction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like as long as we can find a, a, a role for the angel in capitalism, we're okay. It can, <laughs> it can continue to exist, yes. which in a way is the same thing here. It's just sort of like somebody figured out a way to use, to instrumentalize an angel, but not in the general economy, but in this much stranger black economy mm. of... Underground the film. ultimate terroristic underground film. Yeah, it's that scene just blew me away. I think we've kind of covered it. The rest is him finding the film and then, you know, everything unraveling as a result in this can guy's I, life. Can I talk yeah. about one scene that I found utterly horrifying and utterly 
compelling and it kind of gets this issue of like art as a figure of eldritch potency. Sure. So the whole first half of this film, so it's only an hour long. So the first 30 or so minutes, like there's not that much that happens. Like if there's not that much violence or there's not that many scares, it's just creepy. So, you know, the angel, it's creepy. And then his first stop is to talk to a film critic who's one of the few people who ever saw La Fin Absolue du Monde. And he finds this guy in the middle of nowhere. And this guy's clearly a little touched, a little strange. He's a hermit. And he lives in this remote shack that feels like a hoarder cabin. Like it's just stacked floor to ceiling with paper. Yeah. Old moldering paper. And when... Kirby walks in on this guy. He's typing. You hear this tap, 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 tap. And he realizes over the course of his conversation that this guy wrote the original and only review of La Fin Absolue du Monde, but that he feels that he has failed the film and he has spent his life, the 30 years since, he has spent trying to do justice to what he saw. And we realize that all of this paper stacked up in this cabin. It's a single review this guy has been writing for 30 years. Yeah. Creepy. Yeah. It's Sounds awesome. like Howard Bloom with uh, with Shakespeare. <laughs> sort of a <laughs> sort of an awesome, just a sort of an awesome moment. But yes. then it gets violent and it gets violent suddenly and like, a, uh, yeah, it's one of those like that escalated quickly kind of thing. Ingeniously, too. OK, so he goes to Paris. He, there's a film archivist in Paris that he knows who gives him a lead. He doesn't have a lead to Brakovic because this uh, archivist insists that Brakovic is dead. But this archivist knows someone who has been able to pry some memorabilia from the family of Brakovic, from his widow. So he has some artifacts connected to the film. But this person, this collector, is very dangerous, the archivist says. And so you you contact this guy at your own risk. And so Kirby contacts the guy and meets him. He's basically his China Mieville. <laughs> it's like he's like one of those like uh French gangsters you see in movies sometimes. It's like very fit Bald, shaved head with like earrings. Sharp features. Actually, he looks disconcertingly like my buddy Tim, who listens to the show. And so the whole time I'm like, Tim, no. (laughs) (laughs) So this guy turns out to be a real psycho who has never seen La Fin Absolue du Monde, but he wants to see it. And has clearly been driven mad merely by thinking about the film, merely by wanting the film. It has driven him insane. So this guy is uh, so insane that he actually uh, captures Kirby, ties him up and murders a woman in front of him as an act uh, while being filmed as a kind of snuff film, as a kind of transgressive uh, uh, act of artistic creation or something. Yeah. But then something really weird happens. He walks up behind this woman who is the cab driver who drove Kirby to this chateau. I didn't connect that. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And- And, you know, it's typical horror film setup. Like, you know, she's got like fucking 
duct tape across her mouth or whatever. And she's like eyes wide with fear. And he walks out from behind her holding a kukri, a kind of machete. And he just casually whacks it into her throat. And we see a close up as this blade cuts into her. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. Cuts into her throat and blood just. He decapitates out, her out with it, and it's brutal. It it's feels really like it goes brutal. on forever. He's like holds her head and just whack, whack, yeah. whack with this kukri until finally he severs her head. And Kirby is tied up in a chair with duct tape across his mouth. He's screaming, but like you can't, you can't you can only hear these muffled screams. And then at the end, you know, this fucked up cinephile is holding this mutilated severed head and he says to kirby it's like i just turned her into art and he just contemptuously tosses the head aside and it was that moment even more than the appalling image of decapitation that we just saw the moment where he stands arms wide in front of Kirby, like ta-da, like like a like a circus like a showman. showman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and announces that he turned a living human being into a piece of art through yeah. this act of violence. There's something about that that creeped me out so bad, and I'm not sure I even understand why that creeped me out so bad. I think this is deliberate. There's a reference here to those infamous ISIS and Al Qaeda videos of decapitations. Which I think had happened. Which was happening, which yeah. was beginning to happen a lot exactly when that, that film time. was made. Yeah. yeah. And the way that that those videos are, in a sense, aesthetic, they are aesthetic constructs. They are meant, terrorism is a very aesthetic activity. <laughs> um, yeah. it, you strike terror by producing an image in the world that will completely destabilize the society you want to yeah. attack. And so... Um, He's making that parallel and also the weird, the, the kind of alliance of this criminal character, whose name I forget, with people like Georges Bataille, the surrealists, a lot of people who made that argument, okay, that murder could become and must become a work of art. Some of the decadents went there. So it's not like this is some crazy, wild, new idea in this Carpenter film. This idea has history and it's a very dangerous idea. It's dangerous because the terrorists of this world have proven it to be a, an idea with legs, <laughs> if not wings. Flying a plane into the World Trade Center created an image that had incalculable power. And of and course, like the it, image is what mattered. Yeah, it was not the death of the 3,000 people that day, ultimately, that had the effect. It was the image. Yeah. The image, and it wasn't like any old building. It was the World Trade Center, right? Right. The, the whole thing was symbolic. The tower, a tower falling. You know, th these are archetypal images that the. the I mean, the it's in the fucking tarot deck. A yeah, exactly. tower falling. Yeah, exactly. The Tower of Babel doesn't you know. get much more archetypal, which is why the composer Karl Heinz Stockhausen talked about the World Trade Center destruction as the greatest work of art. Now, he wanted to make exactly the kind of argument we're making, that it's like it's something terrible, but he yeah. wanted people to understand exactly what we're talking about. And predictably, of course, everybody mulishly, obstinately insisted on getting him wrong and thinking that he was praising the World Trade Center attacks 
in a kind of aestheticist way, finding beauty in it and not caring at all about the deaths of more than 3,000 people that day. But he was trying to make a point that we're making, and I think that John Carpenter perhaps is making, well, in as much as we could say that he's making points. I don't know if he's making points, but... You know. You're right. Yeah, I don't think that's what he's about, but but I think that... Um I think that's certainly a reading that would go some ways in trying to interpret this film. But the thing is that if you don't have a stable and solid theory of art and oppose it to other forms of aesthetic creation, you're going to be at a loss to argue against Stockhausen there. Or at least to argue that, like I would say that, that the World Trade Center was the greatest work of artifice ever. Right. Mm. But because, again, it's doing what Northrop Frye said ideology does, it applies mythology. That means that it takes mythology out of the imaginal and into the real world. It becomes uh, degraded. It's like capturing an angel and, and keeping it in chains. Mm. Mm. Like the act mm. of capturing an angel is maybe an image of this attempt to take the, to, and, you know, what's it called? Immanentize the eschaton, right? right to take right. What, it, what should remain in the realm of, of the imaginal, of the innately profoundly ambivalent, ambiguous, strange, mysterious, the stuff that we can talk around but never directly talk about and to bring it into this world and to claim to have, to, to know it enough to be able to apply it. That seems to be what Bin Laden did and then mm. what this guy in this scene is doing. But what's interesting is what happens, unless you have something else to say about that, mm -mm. because mm -mm. what happens, what, what's interesting is what happens directly, immediately after this horrible scene where he decapitates the cabbie because then he, um, there's a kind of homoerotic scene where he sits on top of Kirby, who's still tied up in like, the chair. Like he's giving him a lap dance or something. Right, exactly. And then is, you know, he's expounding on his, 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 his love of, of dissolving the boundary between art and life, essentially. Um, and then uh, and, but, suddenly... And, and also from a plot exposition point of view, telling us how it is that La Fin Absolue du Monde actually does its work, which is that it's just like the evil of the act filmed remains right. in the film. It becomes like a force field that affects everything it touches. Correct. Yes. Then there's a jump cut and a total inversion. There's an inexplicable jump cut. All of a sudden, Kirby is free... And he's killed or he's mortally wounded, the guy. There's this weird in jump cut. And, and killed the henchman. And killed the henchman. And this never explained, but it's that's how uh, uh, life starts looking like art. Reality starts looking like a film. There could be jump cuts. There could be inexplicable leaps from one set of affairs to another. Anything could happen now. It's like splicing film. And it's worth noting, I only just realized this, the cigarette burns of the title that he starts seeing cigarette burns whenever he sees cigarette burns and starts having these strange visions there are increasingly violent discontinuities in the plot so right. it's like this metafictional thing where it's like cigarette burns in the real world used to signify the point at which you change the real and yeah. so within the narrative of this film they also end up signifying the same thing the moment that the plot will jump its sprockets or, or will have these inversions right they and, they and announce transformations they announce transformations that are absolute transformations in the sense that when we cut from Kirby being tied up in the chair and his captor sitting on him and we jump cut to Kirby standing over the captor's mortally wounded form on the floor, a new past appears as well. 
in this yeah. past now, Kirby has somehow killed this guy. You're not just jumping ahead in time. You're jumping between universes, almost like between worlds in an almost Dickian kind of way. Like in this version of the film, he's the one who killed his cap, the, the, the right. guy. And, and, and you right. know, it's like you're, and then in the scene after that, you see him in a hotel room and he's starting to freak out, right? Because he just committed this horrible act and he's just pacing in his hotel room and there's a bunch of jump cuts. You see him at one end of the bed, then boom, he's at the other end of the bed and he's, you know, so it's like reality's coming apart at the seams. And so there's this beautiful marriage of form and substance as the plot mm. becomes the medium. It's so strange. And the medium becomes the plot. Same thing happens in um, in the mouth of madness. In, oh yeah, in, in a different way because that's about literature. Like there's a part in the mouth of madness where the villain, who I would argue is Nyar Lothotep, the great old uh, messenger of the elder gods from Lovecraft, actually tears his own face apart. And but it, it turns out that he's just made of paper, and he's like tearing himself up like he was a sheet of paper and you can see the print on the other side as he peels it back. But on the <laughs> other side, it's just an endless black void. Exactly. Yes. Beneath the paper thin, you know. Yeah. Now that's the Sutter Kane, the sort of Stephen King Monkey fictional novelist, like a novelist inside the story of In the Mouth of Madness, who has a new book called In the Mouth of Madness, but he himself has gone missing and this insurance investigator has hired to find him and he does find him. He finds him in a town that can't possibly exist because it exists only in Sutter Kane's books. But it turns out that Sutter Kane thought he was all this time that he was writing fiction, Lovecraftian novels. But it turns out he was merely being dictated these novels by these extra dimensional Lovecraftian beings that the old want ones, yeah. to find, yeah, the old ones that want to find a path to our world. And their path is through Sutter Kane's fiction. The Kane himself mutates and becomes one of these monsters. As you actually saying that he is near Lothotep is absolutely perfect. That's exactly who he is. At one point, he says something that was very J.F. Martellian. It really okay. stuck out to me, and it's relevant to what we're talking about here. Something you've said in the past about how when an artist creates something in a story, that thing, once he ha or she has created it, not only does it exist, but it has always existed. Right. So a novelist could invent an old Yorkshire cottage with slate roof and moss, the moss of ages growing upon the slates. Now, that whole thing, you know, like the, the cabin and the roof and the moss and the overgrown path and the centuries of neglect that have led to its current dilapidated and picturesque state, none of that stuff existed before the novelist wrote it. But once the novelist wrote it, the moss has already been there right. for hundreds of the, years. The process of aging is built into the image itself. So it right. has a, it comes with a past, right? Sutter yeah. Kane says that exact thing to the hero of In the Mouth of Madness, that all of this stuff not only exists, but now that it exists, it always has art has a kind of strange retro causality. Yes, that's true. He says a bunch of crazy stuff, philosophically rich stuff. For example, uh, when Sam Neill's character, the insurance investigator, finds himself suddenly trapped in a confessional in this dark 
black Byzantine church that dominates the uh, landscape of this little town. That's a, a reference to a, a great Lovecraft story called The Hunter of the Dark, which is about a, oh, really? a guy who becomes obsessed with this read. black church uh, in, this, in New England. And he, he huh. tries to find a way to the church and he, can, he never always gets lost on the way and finally he finds it. But anyways, so this dark church is where Sutter Kane is, has uh, kind of ensconced himself. That's where he's writing the, his final book. And um, the church is also the gate to the realm of the old ones. This is the place from which they will emerge. So at one point, Sam Neill's character finds himself locked in a confessional in that church. And Sutter Kane talks to him through the, uh, the little confessional window. And he says, when the line, oh, I don't remember exactly how he puts it, but it's something like, when people can't tell reality from fantasy anymore, the old ones can make their way back. This is almost verbatim from Nick Land's hyperstition idea. Hmm. The hyperstition is obviously a blurring of reality and fantasy. And he says it calls up the old ones. That's what Nick Land says. Now, I'm sure Carpenter, I'm pretty sure he never read Nick Land, but who knows? <laughs> but I just found that parallel striking that when the reality of fantasy is acknowledged. The world becomes very, very, very troubling. Mm. But also, mm. I think that if we don't recognize that there is a reality to fantasy, then it's like, it's like Jung's unindividuated person. The fantasies are just controlling us. Yes. It's like this is the, the weird ambiguity in both of these works by Carpenter, In the Mouth of Madness and Cigarette Burns, is that... We have to see the truth in what these horrible villainous characters are saying while also somehow retaining some kind of sense of reason and morality. And that's the challenge because the, the, the biggest threat in Carpenter isn't like in the mouth of madness, the thing, cigarette burns. He often has the idea of a contagious madness. This is a, a trope that comes up again and again in his work, that madness is contagious and so if there is a reason to abandon reason, then you can't help but do that once you see it and it will spread and then society will dissolve, will de devolve into chaos. The threat of chaos is like all of his films seem to happen in this world that's just one inch, one step, one breath away from total dissolution into chaos. And I would say that the moral, if, you want, if one can do that, uh, the moral is we have to recognize that, but at the same time, we have to recognize that in order to remain reasonable and moral. Like, and that's, it's a dangerous game because you're saying yes to things that are inherently threatening to the stability of your worldview. He's putting us in a very uncomfortable position, and that's what makes his film so musical, so haunting, because... The images aren't representations. They're manifestations of something about reality. His films are a little bit like La Fin Absolue du Monde or the book In the Mouth of Madness. In fact, In the Mouth of Madness brilliantly ends with the main character having escaped from the uh, sanatorium, just wandering the now empty streets as the world has completely devolved into absolute chaos and disorder. And he, he comes upon a movie theater where the adaptation of Sutter Kane's book, In the Mouth of Madness, is playing. And it's actually like, uh, it's, 
on the marquee, you read like In the Mouth of Madness with John Trent, which is the name of the character. And the character at this point just walks in. And sure enough, the movie's playing in this empty movie theater. And it's the movie we just saw. And he starts watching it. And then he starts to just um, laughing up. and yeah, laughing. laughing. And that's how the movie ends. And it's just so Such brilliant. Such a good ending. Yeah. <laughs> People so often complain that John Carpenter doesn't stick the landing. But that's a terrific ending. Oh, God, terrific ending it. to that yeah. film. And he's all alone. You know, everyone else apparently is dead. For some reason, he has been spared. Perhaps because, he, as he discovers, he is a character in the story. He's not a real person. He's just a character in a story. And his role has been to bring In the Mouth of Madness to the world, and thus ensuring the destruction of everything. So clearly, his um, the boon granted him for that is that he gets to be eaten last. Right, exactly. <laughs> There's a great moment, another awesome little quote snippet from that movie is when Stutter Kane tells John Trent, I think therefore you are. Yeah. I just love that. That's, that's the <laughs> thought of God, right? I think therefore you are. And, and again, his movies are always about this stuff. These, these met, the metaphysical implications of a particular epistem that I think, and it's weird. You're right. He's such a, he's a craftsman. He's a, He's the most unpretentious guy you could imagine when you see him talking, like compared to someone like David Lynch, who's very much about ideas of art and all that. Um, he, John Carpenter. He always talks about art. He talks about everything he does as an art thing. He talks about living the art life. I'm talking about David Lynch. Absolutely. Yeah. Carpenter's Carpenter. the opposite. No. No. And for this reason, like, you know, it's just sort of like, so David Lynch has this worldwide vogue. I mean, and I am part of that vogue. I absolutely love David Lynch as anybody who's listened to the show knows. But you got to feel it's a little unfair. Here's John Carpenter, who he is a cult director. He does have people who, like me, who are acolytes, worshipers at his temple. But it's a different temple. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, in a, it's in a more a grimier part of town. Yeah. That temple. Yeah. Um, it's ultimate trash stratum stuff because all these films, if you read the Wikipedia entry on any one of these films, they all say the same thing. Hated by critics and largely ignored by audiences when it was first released and over time has become accepted as like a great film. This is true of all of his great films, except Halloween, which was a huge success uh, right out of the box. But Escape from New York, flop, critical failure. The Thing... Flop, total critical failure. Everybody fucking hated that movie. Um, hmm. Same thing for They Live. Same yeah. thing for, I don't think In the Mouth of Madness did well. Like all of these no. films are hated. Yeah. And everybody says the same thing. I was like, oh, it's just like these are movies for dummies who just want violence and things blowing up. And, you know, there are directors who are like that, like um, people who uh, are always involved in you know, superhero movies. Now I'm talking about nowadays, like, um, uh, who's the guy who did 300? Um, oh, I can't forget his name. Zach something. Zach uh, Snyder. Yes. So like Zach Snyder might be a contemporary version or a more contemporary, a younger version of that kind of director. Somebody who works in trash stratum genres, like genre fiction, which we're all supposed to consider to be lesser than, you know, literary fiction, whatever that's supposed to be. Obviously, 
just in case there's any ambiguity about this, I do not share these views. I don't think that genre is a bad thing. But my point is that this belongs to that stratum of culture where it's possible to get very confused about that. To see somebody who's always working in genre, always doing fantasy, sci-fi, horror, somebody who is always banging out one movie after another. Like in the 80s, he only took one or two years off. He did something yeah. like 10 movies in 10 years. Yeah. Um, most directors who answer to that description are schlock artists, but not John Carpenter. But it took a while for people to see the ecstasy in Mackin's sense, the ecstasy that lies at the heart of even his inferior films. Like not all of his films are equally good. Like I did watch Escape from L.A. And that film is hampered by a lot of things like crappy special effects for one, uncharacteristically poor special effects. Well, there was in that uncomfortable zone, interzone between uh... – you know, practical effects and practical digital. and digital and yeah. yeah. But even there, like I, I was the whole time I was watching, I was like live tweeting it to, to you in the discord production chat yeah. just saying like this movie is very silly. And, and then, yet. and yet I woke up the next day and like, but I can't stop thinking about it. There's certain images that just get burned into your mind's retina and you go around with like a little ghosted retinal after image of those scenes for days afterwards. And even silly old Escape from L.A. is kind of radioactive with that special something, that ecstasy. Yeah, yeah. Another thing about Carpenter is uh, despite his kind of like uh, blue collar, let's say, persona that he presents is uh, in a very, a very, this is something that I think is lacking in a lot of artists today, film artists today. He's very literary like in the mouth of madness, the very title is a reference to at the mountains of madness uh, by Lovecraft, the hotel and in the mouth of madness called Pickman's hotel, which is a reference to Lovecraft. He drops all these. And I'm not saying that he's literary because he read Lovecraft. There's all kinds of references. Like there, it's in cigarette burns. There's, there are references to surrealist film and the history of European art films. And he, he's very much someone who is, aware of his the history of his medium and cares about it and cares about it right and somehow i don't know how philosophically inclined he is but somehow he's also philosophically super sophisticated i'll just give one example from the thing i know you haven't watched it yet but the thing is about you probably know this already it's about an alien entity that imitates other life forms it consumes for example a sled dog and then it can imitate that form perfectly and then eventually the dog kind of opens up and becomes this weird, formless, amorphic creature that's made of little bits of all the other creatures it's consumed. And uh, this kind of elastic, plastic life form that can take different shapes is a really powerful symbol. It's like, it's like he distilled, because the term, the thing, is old in horror, right? The thing at the doorstep or the thing in the moonlight from Lovecraft, the thing from outer space, I think, which was actually the thing was a remake of Howard Hawks movie, I think. Yes. I just read yes, that last right. night. Yeah. So the idea of the thing with a capital T is an old idea in modern horror. But there's a reason why that word works, because we don't know what things are anymore. Like the way that I'd interpret the thing philosophically is as follows. The thing in the thing, the creature, is a pure hexaity with no quiddity. I don't know if that makes mm. any sense to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. But just to explain to listeners. But we should do, probably yeah. explain that. Do yeah. you want to explain it? Well, uh, the way I would explain it is thinking about that when we call something a thing, it is 
taking the object and stripping it of all qualities except the bare fact of its existence. Yeah. Yeah. Give me that thing. That thing. You have to point to it, you know. If I don't point to it, I say, give me that thing. All I am doing in that sentence is saying there is something that exists that I want. You know what I'm saying? So if you say, if, you know, it's the thing from outer space, we don't know what it is. It's just a thing. It's <laughs> And when you say a hexaity without quiddity, quiddity would be the quality of particularity, something that has suffered the accidents, the contingencies of existence so that it looks like this rather than that. that is well, that's exciety. That's exciety, I would say, I think. I think I, it's, it's really ambiguous even well, in the philosophical literature. I mean, hexaity, I would translate at, in Buddhist terms as, you know, tathata or thusness, the mere, yeah. the mere yeah. isness of a thing, which is beyond speech, beyond denotation. I mean, it is that quality of something standing forth in its raw, brutal unassimilable particularity. So from that point of view, right. it's very particular, but unlike something that has quiddity, it doesn't yet have the specific attributes that would allow us to say, instead of that thing, that screwdriver or that hammer. Yes, you know what I'm saying? You're absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Quiddity is translated as whatness. So Traditionally in Western philosophy, quiddity is the way of specifying something by reference to its universals. The red apple, the apple is spherical, it's red, those are its properties. And what makes an object unique in a world characterized by quiddity is what it is like to be it, right? So mm. there is something it is like to be an apple and that's it's the apple's soul. And that's something that only the apple knows and maybe God, but that's the pure quiddity of the apple. Hexaity in Duns Scotus is the individuality of a thing determined by its qualities in time. So for example, I can look at two rocks and say, both of these rocks have this shape, this color, but what makes these two rocks different rocks? It's the fact that this rock is just not that rock. That's the hexaity, the absolute singularity of the thing. And it is um, inseparable. Hexaity, as I see it anyways, is inseparable from its qualities. The thing as a bundle of qualities d defines the thing, which is very similar to sunyata. And we're saying the same thing. But with the thing in the thing, the monster, has no form it has no quiddity. It has no, it, it has no shape. It has no, no face. It has no organs. It is just a process of becoming. It is just a thing that asserts its being moment to moment in whatever way it wants to. It's completely amorphous, almost kind of, uh, it's completely formless. And a world without essences, a world without universals, is a world of pure hexaity, a world where, where mm. universals are always illusions. There mm. is no absolute redness. There's only this and that thing. And I'm only comparing two red things from the point of view of my own hexaity, which is just right. formless right. too. Right. So the thing reveals the kind of weird underlying um, horror of a world that has abandoned the essences. It's a world without essences. Mm. 
but uh but but like did he think of that <laughs> of course not necessary to assume that he thought of that and yet the philosophical affordances in carpenter's film are just huge you know bigger oh, than yeah. it's much easier i find to do philosophy with carpenter than it is with lynch which isn't to say you can't do it with lynch you know that's but, an interesting point and thought you know you're right i think you're right about that huh I want to rhizome this shit a little bit, since with Carpenter's filmography, there are sort of rhizomatic connections from one context to another, just as there are in David Lynch's films. We were talking about the World Trade Center and the ultimate kind of satanic image, the ultimate artifice of the World Trade Center going down in flames. One of the things that is most striking for a contemporary viewer about Escape from New York is the prominent role given to the World Trade Center. And I thought maybe that might be a way to segue to talking about my favorite apocalypse. My favorite apocalypse is the urban world, the city, after it has been broken and emptied out of all but a few brave or damned souls that have either been forced to remain there or chosen to remain there. Dahlgren. Now, compare... What's that? Dahlgren. Like Dahlgren, exactly. The city of Bologna in Dahlgren is my favorite all-time post-apocalyptic landscape. Something that's poetic and beautiful and utterly brutal and capricious at the same time. So one of the ecstatic moments in Escape from L.A., which I know you haven't seen, in which I'm not exactly recommending, but nevertheless, this is a moment that is ecstatic in Mackin's sense, a moment that steps out of the run of vernacular time, which could also be, you know, plot time, but just the sense of it taking place in the in the here and now and occupied with the minutia of our day-to-day social existence, the moment that suddenly we are dealing with something that is raised to the level of the eternal or the perennial, something that stands outside of vernacular time, which for me is one of the big meanings of Mackin's idea of the ecstatic. is when in the middle of, you know, basically a lot of these movies are just chases. So Escape from New York is a chase and Escape from LA is a chase. And in the midst of this film-length chase, there's a, a woman. Okay, so Escape from L.A. and Escape from New York both imagine that the biggest cities in the United States, for various historical reasons that aren't, aren't very interesting or important, become walled-off prisons, giant prisons, where all of the refuse of society are sent. Everybody who is rejected in some vaguely totalitarian new world order gets packed off to the prison that used to be Manhattan or the prison that used to be Los Angeles, right? And so in Escape from LA, in the midst of this, there's a woman who got sent to LA because she was a Muslim and refused to convert because this imagines an an apocalypse where some religious fanatic has taken over the United States. And she's been helping Snake Plissken out in his various wanderings. And at one point she turns to him and says, you know, it's not so bad here. I forget exactly what she said, but something to the effect of like, you know, there's a beauty to this place if you just sort of allow yourself to see it. And at that precise moment, she shot dead out of nowhere, just random. It's a drive-by shooting. Oh man. 
And the look on Snake Plissken's face as he watches her die is the only moment that Kurt Russell permits himself a moment of tenderness, a look of genuine shock and sorrow. And it's an amazing little moment, but it is the perfect crystallization of that apocalypse, of the flavor of that apocalypse, that she's right. You know, that there is something beautiful about the way people have made a living in the rubble, have taken the broken down remains of our urban civilization and found ways of living within it on new terms, where the city becomes a new wilderness sort of we were talking about that actually in the taboo episode in, in, right. in, in fight club the vision of the city transformed then the question that we didn't ask in the taboo episode is what kind of person lives in that world and that's the question that carpenters escape from la and escape from new york that's the question that those films to some extent answer, although it's not as if these are films that are about answering questions. But all this right. is a way of introducing like my favorite apocalypse or my favorite post-apocalyptic landscape is that landscape and that mingled poetry of the city become nature and living within that and the mingled poetry and brutality and the fact that the two are really two sides of the same coin and the moment we get this poetic expression of the landscape and escape from LA is also the same moment that the person uttering it is pointlessly, senselessly yeah. cut down. The price of beauty is horror. Yes. You know, you pay for your beauty with horror. Well, that's what that dude who decapitates the cabbie clearly thinks. Well, that's the, what we were talking about earlier, the ambiguousness of having to recognize something without forfeiting one's humanity, without losing your morality at the same time. How do you accept unreason while remaining reasonable? Mm. You know, Mayasu's philosophy is about that. How do I think unreason without losing reason altogether? But that's the challenge of these films. It's like, how do we accept that what's happening on the screen expresses something real to a certain extent in an imaginal way while avoiding becoming the murderous aesthete, the terrorist. It's a really uncomfortable and uh, troubling question, but you just summarized it perfectly. And we've said this on the show before, right? I don't remember how you put it, but you said it recently in a semi-recent show that I found really compelling. But right now I'm just looking for that famous passage from Rilke, about the angel. Who, if I cried out, would hear me among the angel's hierarchies? And even if one of them pressed me against his heart, I would be consumed in that overwhelming existence. For beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror, which we still are just able to endure. And we are so odd because it serenely disdains to annihilate us. Every angel is terrifying. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>